One week after Ukraine liberated Kherson, it renewed the train connection with the city. Ukraine's President Zelensky visited Kherson only a few days after the Russians fled the biggest city they had occupied since February 24th. Ukrainians are renewing electricity supplies across the country, though its infrastructure was heavily damaged by the Russian strikes. Russian propaganda says the West is afraid of Russia, although the reality is that Russian defeats in Ukraine provoke increasing disappointment inside the country. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. This is our weekly digest covering events in and around Ukraine from November 13th to November 20th, 2022. My name is Volodymyr Yermolnko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, Tanya, let's discuss uh, the key events over the past week. And let's uh, tell our audience this. This is probably the first podcast where we are recording abroad from the 24th of February. No, we are not traveling a lot abroad. We are, we are staying in Ukraine, uh, uh, mostly in Kyiv, but also traveling across the country uh, to dangerous places as well, as you might hear from our po- podcast. This is the first time we actually traveled uh, abroad. We are now in Germany. Then we will head to France to present our French-speaking podcast, L'Ukraine face à la guerre. And uh, what does it feel like to be abroad and to make a podcast in Germany where there are no air alerts, no electricity uh, blackouts. What is it? Yeah, mean? this is uh, an extraordinary experience for both of us. Uh, for me, it's the first time I, I leave the country uh, from the 24th uh, of February. And yes, indeed, so we, we have this, uh, imagine just one year ago, we could made, make this journey in in a couple of hours, uh, flying from Kiev to Munich, where we are now. But uh, uh, today it took us almost 24 hours to get from Kiev. Uh, More to, than 24 hours. No, it, it it was around twenty four hours. No, but if we if we take the the moment we left our apartment, yeah, it was uh, more than twenty four hours, yes. right, right? Yeah, it was even more. That it was twenty six or twenty seven hours, right? You're you're absolutely right. So and we had to change transport many times. So we traveled to Poland, first of all to Helm. And then uh, by train, night train, and then by car, we rent the car to travel to Warsaw. And then we took a flight to Munich. And so we are here. And yes, indeed. So this is extremely, uh, it feels extraordinary to leave uh, this darkness in, in Ukraine. Because when we were leaving our apartment, it was, uh, uh, we, we don't have, we didn't have a blackout, but a couple of hours ago, it was a blackout, so we waited, I remember, to have some light to just to get off the apartment and to take the lift with the baggage and all that stuff. And when you arrive to a normal country, you understand 
how how much how 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 different it is to live a normal life and don't don't and we are not nervous about electricity we are not thinking about recharging constantly our uh, our iPhones and uh, smartphones and all all the and filling bathroom with water yeah and and we are not we are still having all these reflexes just to 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 think about water especially during first hours and then and then it feels something really really uh, like like you are traveling to a, a different planet but um the aim of our journey is quite clear we are going to uh, you had some uh, you had a, um, a discussion here in munich maybe you'll tell the story and we will be having a series of uh, events in paris both participation in the festival uh, several uh, participations and we will be talking to media and we are really delighted to be able to be there and to talk in the name of ukraine and trying to explain to deliver our experience because the what we what we've also learned from these eight, even almost nine months of war, it, that it's extremely difficult to communicate experience. It is uh, easier to communicate ideas, uh, some uh, some messages, but uh, what counts is this experience we, we have from this war. Yes, indeed, and um, we will for 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 those of you who are French speakers or who have friends. Uh, who are French speakers in France, in Switzerland, in Belgium, in Canada, in in the African states, uh, uh, maybe in the in the states of the Middle East? Uh, you can check out our podcast in French, which is called "L'Ukraine face à la guerre," Ukraine facing the war. And um, actually, we also we already recorded five or six five, episodes. Five, yes, episodes. five episodes. Sorry. Uh, I think very interesting, not between ourselves. This is only the first episode we made between ourselves, but uh, Tane is the, is the host of this French-speaking podcast, and there are very interesting episodes with the French journalists uh, who are working in Ukraine for, for, for many years. So uh, we are in Munich. This is a fantastic festival uh, now. Uh, in uh, um, I would not call it about Ukraine because Ukraine is the key topic, but it is not it's not centered only on Ukraine. It is curated by Tanya Malarchuk, who is uh, uh, a fantastic Ukrainian writer who is living in Austria for many years. So she is German speaker, but she's also very very much known in Ukraine, and she also is award winning book writer. But she's now curating this festival. And uh, today we had Yuri Andrukhovich, uh, one of the most famous uh, Ukrainian writers. Tomorrow there will be Serhii Zhadan, and uh, uh, this festival was opened by Andriy Kurkov, also a very prominent Ukrainian writer. And uh, I participated in uh, a discussion about evil, and uh, other speakers were uh, speakers from Germany and Poland, uh, Witold Szablowski, a famous uh, Polish writer, and I can I, I should I should tell you that it is difficult. It is difficult, precisely because what you said. It is very difficult to communicate experience. And for example, before uh, um, before my event on Saturday, there was a event that actually was touching for many people by uh, two Ukrainian soldiers, writers, or writers who are on the front line, Artem Chekh and Artem Chapai, and they were actually presenting in the military uniform. Miraculously, they were allowed to cross the border and to come to Munich. And uh, 
I think uh, this is the most difficult thing about about all this because, of course, we can we can talk to people who are sympathize with us and have big empathy, and we see Ukrainian flags in Munich on on, on the administrative buildings, and it, it actually creates so much emotion and so much gratitude. Although we know that some troubles in in the German policy towards Ukraine in the arms supplies. But sometimes it seems that uh, people you talk to, uh, the war, human suffering, uh, death, are theoretical ideas for them and not not experience. And therefore, if it is only a theoretical idea, then you are asking a question: What is what is what is the result of it? What is what is the outcome of of our discussion? If the outcome is to have another theoretical idea, it's probably not what we want, because we in Ukraine obviously think and see how ideas create reality, influence the reality, and we, with you, for example, we are we are trying to be as practical as we can in our volunteering work, etc. So it's not only about ideas. So I think this is kind of a, this glass wall which which might be w- between uh, those those of us who experienced the war and those of us who just watched about this war on the television and i'm not i'm saying that not to blame uh, somebody or to criticize somebody it's just normal reality but uh, just for you to understand maybe that of course well i'm i'm always asked what is the best thing to know, to understand it? Well, the best thing is presence. If you're present physically, if you come to Ukraine, see the country, it's the best. If you cannot do that for various reasons, talk to those people who are present, to journalists, to to soldiers, to people who evacuated. Talk to them. Uh, ask them to share their stories, their pictures, their videos. Uh, be as much present as you can or be as much close to those who are present as you can. This is my advice. Yeah, there's exactly. There's not, not, nothing to add here. Exactly this experience is... Uh, because also we lack words. We lack, lack words how to describe what, what, what is happening and what do we feel. Uh, many times we were asked, what are your feelings? How do you feel about all that? And we understand that a lot of words we know, they, they don't describe that they're best what is happening. So in our reaction, what's happening when each Monday we have an air alert and we know that another part of electrical infrastructure will be ruined what what do we feel when we know that in the coming hours we will not having the possibility to call our family or to have electricity to walk properly etc this is this is maybe those we have the word anger or rage but it is not describing what we feel those russians and there is no word to describe what we feel about uh, just a simple thing when we go to Facebook, I don't know if you have the same reflex, but when I see a photo on a Facebook now at the times, I just, I scroll the text quickly for, for, just to get to know if this person is dead or not. Because most frequently now, when there is a portrait in the, from the Facebook, it means for us Ukrainians that this guy is, is dead. So this it, guy or this, uh, this, this girl. Woman, yes. it, 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 so it feels like, you know, these appearances, the painful appearances of, uh, of people. And I would also say a phrase I've read in the Facebook 
couple of days ago, somebody who knows uh, acquaintance, not not a real friend, but uh, it was a woman who wrote a post which is uh, extremely painful uh, for us as well. She wrote, you know nothing about this war unless you've sent your own son to this war. You know, so this is a situation when you sacrifice maybe the, the dearest thing for you, creature for you, and not not we are, we don't have this experience, right? So uh, when we are describing problems we are facing, this is nothing if you compare it to what these people, I mean mothers but also fathers who send their sons but also their daughters to this world, how do they feel during all these months knowing that their kids are on the front line and that at any second they will be, that this fate, this, this cruel aggression could deprive them of the presence of their kids. Exactly. And the loss of life is, of course, the most, uh, the most biggest tragedy and uh, something that you, you can never reconcile, probably. And uh, I agree with you that experience of the war is something... I, I don't think that there is some general thing as experience of the war. Because one thing is our experience with you, how we uh, take care of our kids, how we stay in the country despite the missile strikes, how we are living under air alerts. Well, actually, by staying in the country, we are risking our lives. And uh, what is much more problematic morally for me, we are risking the lives of our children. Uh, but I think it's nothing compared to people who went to the front line. But then again, people who went to the front line or to, to went to the army, where are they? They can be in a big. They can be on the uh, point zero and uh, be shelled every day and and really have little chance to survive. Or they can be somewhere deep in the country and uh, and they can be regarded from by these people who are on point zero as kind of people who just don't know what the war is, etc., etc. We can we can develop this uh, this reflection so the war experience is, is very different and very diverse and it is important uh, to to try to break these glass walls and glass ceilings and therefore we are trying uh, our best to travel across ukraine to talk to people and sometimes it's so much painful to talk to people of course who who lost uh, the closest ones so uh, let's talk about the week, right? What happened uh, during the week? And uh, the first thing is that Ukrainians sent the first train to Kherson. So the Ukrainians uh, renewed the, the railway connection with it. Unfortunately, we were not in this first train because we moved in, 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 the, in the opposite direction. But we have seen lots of photos on Facebook of smiling Ukrainian people, our friends, journalists primarily, who visited her son. So, so so back to normality but in a way let's also describe this uh, this event when Zelensky visited Kherson without any any announcement just 3 days it was 3 days after the liberation of the city and i think i really think it is quite a courageous decision because uh, we do know how it looks like when the city is liberated it takes normally days and even weeks to demine the territory so it was an effort uh, it was yes yes it was a kind of a pr at the same time but uh, but but at the same time, imagine you are entering the city 
just a cap, just 24, not, not 20, not, not, not 48, but 72 hours after Russians left. It means, it means that city is still unprepared, that there are security re, uh, issues, that people are still frightened and disoriented in a way. They are happy to see Ukrainian troops, but nothing is ready. And it was a, a very, good decision in my my opinion because it was a kind of a clear sign to to Putin and to Russia stating that well we are not afraid to visit the occupied cities uh, and look and such a contrast between Zelensky and Putin Putin is not, never present in in Kherson and even so he's not not public not not really public now and this but he's claiming his this territory being Russian and Zelensky visit was important to to encourage people from Kherson because many of them they suffered now people try to explain what they felt and um, This is joy, but this is also about these long months of silence and fear. People, for example, were talking about that they are walking and they were trying not to look Russians in, in, in the eyes. Just they were avoiding the eyes of Russians because for the Russians could do anything if, if they saw that you were looking in a different in not proper way, etc. etc. So occupation is a phenomenon. We'll be studying maybe for years after after this war how people feel in the occupation. They were obliged, many of them, to take money. I mean, their pensions, for example, in rubles. They were paying in rubles. They were using uh, Russian SIM cards for telephones and all this stuff. Uh, and these people were not collaborating. But, you know, this is changes dramatically your life. Some people were living close to places where Russians were torturing people. And imagine, just imagine that. You live in a place. You are not allowed to go out a lot. And all the time you're hearing this screaming, these cries of people, and you are unable to help. You are unable to do anything. And I imagine that this condition is, is a torture in itself, just to be to be there and to leave it through for long eight months and and be witness disappearance of people and all that stuff so this is um this is a difficult story the, I, now we are we are enjoying the situation we it's a lot of joy a lot of uh, tears and a lot of uh, um, optimism about Kherson but i think this is a trauma as well and we'll be discussing and we'll be seeing the consequences of this trauma in the coming months and even years and uh, well i I hope and I am sure that all the sufferings will be described in, in very detail. And I see so many people who are working on that, including ourselves. Uh, we at Ukraine World, if you go to our site, you will see the section stories, the stories that we collect from, from such people. But there are so many others who are doing that and who are preparing cases for Uh, to, to, to restore justice. So uh, next week there will be an anniversary uh, of Holodomor and we will talk about this, I, I hope, in, in, in one week. We will try to talk about Holodomor, the great famine of the 32-33, but also other famines. And, uh, well, the, the big difference is that that event, genocidal event against the Ukrainian uh, peasants, against the Ukrainian nation, was almost unnoticed for the world. And uh, 
except for some some uh, some except, uh, exceptions now the whole world is looking at this and ukrainian journalists international journalists are working on the stories the stories of kidnapping of the stories of killing of the stories of uh, torturing etc so i hope this maybe for the first time in history this great evil which is connected with this russian imperialism which lasted for centuries it will finally come up to the surface and the and, and the big question is whether the world will be ready to look inside it and because this is looking into the abyss it will you will need to rethink many things that you believed in and let's not, let's not forget that many people from Kherson are have been abducted and they have been abducted to Crimea and there are hundreds of people and we don't know what is happening to them and during the Russian retreat Russians were also taking these prisoners with them so it is liberation of Kherson doesn't mean that these these people are are free and let's not forget that the city is still until now so one week after the liberation it's still without electricity and without water and without heating so it's uh, getting colder in ukraine so in, in kiev it was around zero at the moment we left and now we know that it's minus two three degrees so it's quite cold there's snow in Kherson it's warmer, but still winter is coming, and this winter will not will not be easy for people in Kherson and everywhere else in Ukraine. So let's come come back. I would like to come back to this um, to this idea that you expressed: is that uh, actually Putin has never traveled to the occupied territories? Has he traveled? Has he ever traveled to Crimea? By the way, I'm asking this question since 2014. Yes, sure. He at least, uh, as far as I remember, uh, we discussed this spontaneously. We can check it online. But I remember that he visited for the bridge. So when they opened uh, this Crimea bridge, and he he was present on this uh, and this car, and there were many photos of him because it was symbolic for him. They made a couple of a couple of uh, efforts to make this uh, bridge, and they were unsuccessful in the first years, and then they were helped by uh, um, by a prominent. Uh, uh, European company and Euromedan Press, our friends from Euromedan Press, Alessandra and colleagues, they published a very good investigation about that. So just check it online about how come that Putin was able to make this bridge. Because in Soviet times, there were several projects about that, but never successful because it was extremely physically difficult to make this bridge. So he visited uh, Crimea at that occasion and maybe, maybe some other times, but at any moment, he wasn't present in Donbass, Donetsk, neither Lugansk, because they were not considered being Russian, for sure. But uh, yes, but then, I, I, I mean, after the referendums, these illegal referendums in the late September, right, uh, they recognized this territory as being Russia. So it will be normal, right, for, for this power to, to, to president. So the, they actually, they had about 40 days to visit these territories, either Putin or I don't know Lavrov. Uh, what Lavrov is a foreign minister, but maybe Shustin, the prime minister, or whatever. They have never done it in in forty something days, 
with regard to Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, Mariupol, whatever. And then three days after the liberation of Kherson, Zelensky visits the city and Russians comment about this, that this is a provocation because these are Russian lands. This also shows the, the level of courage, the level of this distance towards people uh, in the Russian Empire and... Uh, Zelensky's attempt to reduce the distance between Look, the, him I and I think that Putin, he just doesn't care about uh, Kherson or Mariupol as itself. So they just don't, don't care what kind of territory, what kind of city is it. So this is an empire and they just never interested in what's, uh, what's happening in these cities. Uh, what kind, what do, do people really think? This, for, for him, any Ukrainian city captured by Russian troops is just a message a message to a whole world, look what we are able to do, right? So for, for, for them, Mariupol, the, Mariupol in the ruins is just a message, I don't know, to United States, to NATO, whatever, to whoever, in fact. Just look, we are able to do so, and what can you do to us? So this is not about, just he just doesn't care about about the cities they declare to be the Russian. And all these rhetorics about about uh, defending people of Donbass or Russian speakers. This is complete fake. They just don't care about people. For them, all these localities, all these places are important only to show to somebody else, not to even to Ukrainians, but to somebody, uh, to Biden, Joe Biden or whatever, to NATO leaders, to show that Russia is still strong. Yes, um, um, but but for me it also symbolizes that uh, that's huge distance that Putin has with his own citizens, with his own territories, and um, kind of this uh, attempt to reduce as much as possible the distance of, on the part of Zelensky. So Zelensky doesn't uh, he doesn't make himself kind of a a father of the nation. He is presenting himself as a maybe brother of the nation, brother of everybody, right? Uh, a, a friend of the nation. So it's it's much more horizontal relations than uh, than in Russia. What else can we say? Uh, electricity networks. So the situation, as we are told by by people close, well, by, by our parents who stayed in Ukraine. By the way, about these tiny details, I I've received a message. Uh, today from my mother uh, they are living with my father on the 13th floor in on in Kiev left bank and uh, well my father will turn 70 in a few days my mother is a little bit younger four years younger so if there is an electricity card they uh, cut they need to climb to the 13th floor uh, without without elevator your father is living on the 16th floor He's also about 70 and um, he needs to climb. And it's very dif difficult for people in this age. But my parents also um, have their oven on electricity. So actually, uh, we were thinking what to do if there's an electricity cut and they cannot really cook uh, food for themselves. So we bought for them a little gas oven. And uh, and I received a, a message from my mother that they prepared for the first time a, a coffee on this gas gas oven with with little gas balance. So this is also to tell you about these little tiny details. Of course, there is nothing compared to big tragedies, but it's just changing the life in an interesting way. 
Uh, but and let's not forget that it was during this week when Russians reshelled Ukrainian ter- territory. With, uh, it was a, a huge number, almost 90, 90 missiles arriving to Ukrainian territory back in Tuesday. So it was this week. So we're talking yeah, about, and it ruined, uh, because, yes, and, and it created even, um, harder situation with electricity because before that moment we had uh, this black oust which lasted for four hours, right? But after Tuesday and Wednesday, it, they lasted even longer. I remember, uh, six hours and a half and then a small pause and then another four hours, something like that. So situation was getting worse and was during the week. But during the weekend, at least according to information we are getting from inside Kiev, situation is getting much better. And a lot of people told us that yesterday on, on Saturday there were no blackouts at all. So it means that the um, potential of Ukrainian system are still there and uh, these uh, works are, are going on. And it's not so easy for Russian tr- troops to destroy the whole system, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, coming back to this big uh, big missile attack, um, indeed 90 missiles, but most of them were downed. Uh, over 80%, 80%. Over, over 70 missiles were downed. And that means that uh, Ukraine is using... Western air defense systems, which are gradually being supplied uh, in an efficient way, but also using its own uh, air defense system, sometimes in a, in a very kind of an interesting way. Uh, but, uh, but but it means that more high-precision weapons are needed to down these missiles because, as we see, Russians are attacking not Ukrainian army but civilian infrastructure. Let's be precise. If we look back on the 10th of October... Uh, this first big strike on uh, against uh, energy infrastructure. There were only fifty fifty uh, percent of uh, Russian missiles which were destructed dist- by Ukrainian air defense. And one ma- month later, on the fifteenth of November, already eighty percent of uh, missiles were were demolished. So it means that yes, indeed, we remember many countries. Uh, announced and realized the supplies of air defense systems. But the, the, the thing is that it really works. So we need just a little bit more. Uh, we are aware of the fact that it will be never 100%. It, this is physically impossible. It will be 90-something percent, maybe 95. So this is impossible to be able to intercept any, uh, every missile. But it is possible to to make it not interesting for Russia because they are also um, paying a lot for these missiles. If I'm not mistaken, uh, for this last strike on last Tuesday and Wednesday, it was almost one million one billion dollars or euros. Uh, the, the real cost of these missiles arriving to Ukraine. So, at certain moment, it will be no reason for Russia to use to spend so much money for these missiles and for the strikes without any result. That's it. And let's also not forget this tragic episode that happened. One of the missiles hit the Polish territory a few kilometers from the Polish-Ukrainian border, and unfortunately two people died. Two people died. That means that how this war is actually spilling over, 
and um, and gradually, well, can touch upon the NATO countries. So there is different interpretations whose this missile was. Uh, as far as we see that Pol- Poland, United States, they rather tend to say that this was not a Russian missile, but probably a Ukrainian air defense missile. Ukraine denies it, and uh, Zelensky is most probably is informed by the Ukrainian military, who are saying that this is a Russian missile. Maybe there are two missiles, right? The the Russian missile and the Ukrainian air defense. And um, at least initial, let's if if you look uh, attentively, at least initial messages about this uh, event were that there were two missiles arriving to this village, six uh, kilometers from the from the Ukrainian border, and but the next day they were talking already about one missile. Maybe there is something there. We are not well informed about exactly what was going on, but we understand why Volodymyr Zelensky asked and requested the Ukrainian presence during the investigation because Ukraine has the right to see what's going on on the ground. We do understand of the complexity of the situation be, uh, given that uh, Poland is their NATO member and this could be about Article 4 or maybe even about Article 5. Yeah, so this is serious things and we understand the complexity but at the same time there is also no reason just to, to hide the fact that it was a Russian missiles also present there. And, and maybe, there is no reason to hide if there is a Ukrainian missile. Yeah, sure, no sure. Is no, no, because nobody is blaming Ukraine. Nobody is saying that, look, uh, almost nobody, right? Uh, blaming Ukraine, stating that, look, Ukraine is shelling Poland. Poland, this is not simply not true, even if it was a missile um, of uh, air defense system for coming from Ukraine. The aim of this missile was to, 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 to destroy Russian missile. But Let's, let's just one thing I'd, I'd like to tell you. Mm, uh, so we we see, what what we see is the war is getting larger anyway. So Poland is already victim of this war, and uh, we understand that for for many months the the, the main strategy of uh, of Western allies of Western partners of Ukraine were to to slow down a little bit. I mean, in a way to help Ukraine, but to do it in a way that uh, Russia is has some time to weaken and without making some some uh, dangerous moves, not to provoke, etc., etc. But the problem with this approach is that when you think that you can, you're doing everything to to keep this war local on your side, so you're doing everything possible for this war, not to extend the border between Ukraine and NATO countries, right? But on the other side, what you see that Russia is doing everything possible to make this war larger, with Belarus, first of all, but then with Iran, with drones, and maybe even missiles which will arrive to Ukraine. And now with Poland, with this presumably maybe accident or attack, we don't know exactly with Poland. So this uh, strategy to keep, just to keep this conflict local, to pretend that this is only a local thing, this is not about whole nature, it makes it Russia is doing the contrary. They're trying to, they're quite successful in making this war greater and larger. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, obviously. So, uh, of course, we we should also 
say that it is enormous tragedy that people have died and we just through this podcast we also send the condolences to to Poland and to Polish citizens who lost their the closest ones uh we are kind of accustomed well it's a, it's a very bad word of course to to deaths in Ukraine but it it really can spill over and um, maybe Russia is indeed seeking in this because for Russians it is very i mean very bad you know to lose this war against Ukraine a, a country that a nation that they don't even recognize the existence of right so they really want to present this war as the war against nato america whatever What it will do? it will give it will give my much more arguments for them to uh, to push and to send this all these young people the mobilized people to the front line okay so Maybe our next chapter in this podcast, let's talk about Russian propaganda and let's talk about this Russian Russian propaganda messages. Uh, and you already mentioned that um, this uh, this narrative about about uh, I, I already mentioned initially this narrative about that Russia says Russian propaganda says recently that the West is actually afraid of Russia. The West is afraid. So, so this narrative that the West, the Western countries are reluctant to start the war, to be involved in the war with Russia. This is the narrative uh, that Russians are saying that the West is actually afraid of Russia. And it's interesting how they they always try to twist everything, right? So they always try to uh, make the situation look absolutely different and upside down. So they are in this situation in which um, they are a kind of a pariah state all over the world. And, uh, I mean, everybody is mocking at them. Uh, everybody is seeing, well, not everybody, but many, many people are seeing the Russian weakness. But this feeling, which is, of course, in the West, nobody wants to be in the war with Russia because of the consequences that it might lead to. But that doesn't mean that people are afraid or countries are afraid of Russia. They just do not want to involve into that, into this destructive process. And Russians are pre presenting it like this. Yeah, so this is something very fundamental for Russia to be victorious. And it's also linked to the image of Putin. So he's he was al always been presented like a uh, warrior, somebody which, who brings only victory for Russia. And I think that this is not only about Putin's regime. I, I think it's far beyond, in fact. So this phenomena when Russians say we'll never lost in the past, which is completely false, but they are convinced that Russia was victorious in any kind of wars in the past. And for them, what is unacceptable, I mean, even for people, even for people who don't really support Putin and this regime, this is unacceptable. I mean, this this military defeat. I think this is something about their inner feeling of their big country, powerful country, and it, this could create a lot of problems for us. They they will be not able. They will not be able um, to recognize a defeat easily. So it will yeah, take. Th therefore, they they're trying. Even to, those people who are against Putin, right? It, therefore, they're trying to you know make this upside down of this story. So the the article that I referred to just now, 
uh, is called the fear uh, in front of Russia will push the West to renounce from Ukraine. It was published by Mr. Andrei Markov on the website called Общественная служба новостей, the, the social, the, I don't know how to say it, public service of, of news and pub, public news service. Um, I don't know how mainstream this website is, most probably not, but, but this narrative is present. Another interesting thing is that, well, the Russians are always saying that they started this war uh, to kind of uh, to undo the NATO expansion, to push NATO back to the borders of 1997 or 1991. But in fact, what is happening? They they forced, well, they 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 invited or kind of incited Sweden and Finland to apply for NATO membership. They made the Ukrainian army much more aligned with NATO standards, NATO practices, and NATO weaponry. Uh, there is exchange of intelligence between the United States, Ukraine, NATO, etc. So actually, Russians were thinking how to keep Ukraine away from NATO than one year ago. Now they're pushing Ukraine much closer to NATO than one year ago. I think this is a lack of intelligence, in fact, a lack of uh, of strategy, because it was quite easy to imagine that if you uh, if you provoke, not not provoke, maybe that's not the right term, but if you weigh, if you go in a way of aggression, there will be a reaction. So, but the problem is with Russia that they they never considered Ukraine to be a subject. So they also considered it to be like uh, an object. So they were not waiting for for such a resistance, such a response. And that's why quite clear that uh, for them, they could not just predict just in two, two, in two, three steps what will happen. And de facto, Ukraine is much closer to NATO. I mean, in, in terms of standards, in terms of equipment used in Ukraine. So a couple of months ago, we could not imagine HIMARS or, or any kind of this uh, sophisticated equipment which arrives here in Ukraine. Look, nine months ago, we were crying about close the sky, about these air defense systems, etc. Now, Ukrainian defense system reinforced by first-hand weapon, they can close the sky up to 80%, right? So this is something incredible. It's, it's coming true, right? So, but I think that Russians, they were unable to imagine just because there is a blind spot somewhere in the center of this war. And this blind spot, this is about Ukraine. They just that they just don't recognize the existence of Ukraine, of the Ukrainian character, of the Ukrainian nation, of Ukrainian people as such, so Ukrainian language for sure. And this is a weakness because they're just not ready to face reality. Yeah, this is the situation when they became victim of their own virtuality, of their own disinformation. And maybe last point, Russia hasn't had plurality of media for decades Ukraine has had plurality of media for decades. Russia hasn't changed its leader for decades, yes, for already more than 20 years. Ukraine has its government and leaders changed every four or five years. Sometimes during Euromaidans, when the leaders were too authoritarian, but most often during irregular elections. Russians deny the right of Ukrainians to exist. Ukrainians actually don't deny the right of Russians to exist, but just beyond our borders. Russia has marginalized Jewish opinion leaders. Well, we see how 
many uh, opinion leaders in Russia with Jewish origins were in the media, they were expressing more liberal views. They are now just, you know, expelled from the country or left the country or have, have no say actually in Russian politics. Ukraine has made, on the contrary, one of the Jewish opinion leaders its president, right? Russians want to ban Ukrainians from speaking Ukrainians in Ukrainian language in Ukraine. That's what their strategy all the time. And the discussion was, you know, also in the West, oh, how Ukrainians try to ban the Russian language in Ukraine. Well, this is this is absolute absurdity because Ukrainians were fighting against the Russian policy to ban Ukrainian language in Ukraine. But Ukrainians don't want to ban Russians from speaking Russian in Russia or from speaking uh, in their uh, everyday life Russian in Ukraine as well. So this is a question of national language, public language versus private language. So the question we are asking, who is the fascist state? What is the fascist state? Is it maybe Russia that is kind of a, to use a concept of Timothy Snyder's schizophrenic fascism that is actually blaming all the others in its own faults? So these are the questions, of course, we should be asking when we are talking about Russia, about Russian propaganda, which, of course, is full of disinformation, but the key thing about it is an attempt to destroy the enemy in the minds, in the hearts and minds. And um, so, therefore, the key goal of this propaganda is actually the goal of the, war the goal of the warfare. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist. And my co-host is Tityana Harkova, who is in charge of International Department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote the majority of your assistance to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.